He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, even the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Before we open up God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to study your word, to be reminded of just the wonderful privilege that we have, that we have our own Bibles. In many cases, we have several Bibles. We have multiple translations, but we have your word preserved for us down through the centuries and provided for us in wonderful ways today in ways that it is not available to the vast majority of Christians throughout the centuries due to lack of copies, living in countries where uh, your word is prohibited and the possession of a Bible can be punished by death or by imprisonment. So we have a great privilege to have your word, to study your word, and to uh, memorize and to assimilate it into our thinking. So, Father, as we study today a topic which a lot of people think they understand, but most of us, when we think about it, have difficulty understanding it or applying it consistently, we pray that you would help us to understand it and that God the Holy Spirit would help us to see ways in which we need to apply it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study. It's a topical study built off of the passage that we were studying in Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 26, where the Apostle Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Now, there are many places in the Scripture, as I have pointed out, where the Scripture tells us not to do something. How do we do that? How are we able to not sin? What are the skills, the spiritual skills that the Scripture describes for us that enable us to stay in fellowship, to continue walking by the Spirit, and not to give in to the temptation of the sin nature? So I summarize these in ten spiritual skills. And so we have been studying these uh, spiritual skills and now we are at a dealing with some of the more advanced skills. And the three that we are looking at all work together. They work in tandem. We have our personal love for God, then our Christian love for one another, and then our occupation with Christ. All of these tie together and are built on the concept of love in this church age. So in this lesson, what we're going to try to do is understand love. 
in our culture, we have, we have a, a lot of uh, wrong ideas and confused ideas about what love is. Just look it up in the dictionary and you'll find a bad definition that love is an emotion. There is an emotion that we identify as love and that is built off of attraction to somebody and the enjoyment of being in somebody's uh, somebody's life and being in their presence and doing things together. But that is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about love. There is a, there, in fact, two different definitions of love that I'm going to develop for you today. One relates to what I'm decided I'm going to call biblical love. A, probably a more technical term would be, uh, law according to the Mosaic law, uh, love con- uh, according to the Mosaic law. And the other is Christian love. Because what we have today is a mandate for believers in Christ to love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. This love is further developed. I'm getting an echo. Y'all hearing that echo? I'm getting an echo off the speakers. That turned it down a little too much, maybe. What? Okay. That, that's a little better. All right, in, in, in Christian love, number one, Jesus gave us a commandment. He gave us a new commandment, he says, in John 13, 34, and 35, that we love one another as he loved us. That's a higher standard than the love in the Mosaic Law. And then in Galatians 5, we learn that this love is a fruit of the Spirit. So that really makes it different. It's not the same thing that we find if we study love in the Old Testament or even in the Gospels. So we have to understand these concepts. We use terms like personal and impersonal and conditional and unconditional to just grapple with some of these distinctives. And then we're going to see the little bit about the relationship of love uh, to grace and to mercy. So what we've already learned in our study is that there are the basic spiritual skills, which are the foundation for more advanced skills. When we look at the basic skills that we study, there are things we learn from the Bible that gives us an orientation to what the Bible teaches. We call that doctrinal orientation. Along with that, we have an understanding of God's grace toward us in terms of unmerited favor. You cannot truly understand what the Bible teaches about love unless we are growing to a certain degree in terms of our orientation to God's word, our doctrinal orientation, or our orientation to God's grace. Those are foundational to being, to developing the capacity and the ability to love in the way Christ talked about it. So we've already learned these basic spiritual skills and what the Bible teaches about these skills. So we have this chart that in spiritual childhood, we the first thing we learn as a believer, I was thinking about this this morning, I said, actually, for people who are unbelievers, there's a prior problem-solving device, and that's trusting Christ as Savior. 
because until then you don't have life. You're spiritually dead and you're basically without hope in this life. It is not until you trust in Christ as Savior and you are regenerated or born again that you have the ability to deal with the real issues in life. But we still continue to sin, so we need to keep short accounts and admit or acknowledge to God our sins so that we can be restored to that walk by the Spirit as we grow and as we mature. Uh, As a result of confession, God the Holy Spirit fills us, and we walk by means of the Holy Spirit. That describes our own ongoing life in right relationship to the Holy Spirit. The issue in life is not getting into fellowship. The issue in life, the Christian life, is to stay in fellowship. It's a continuous walk by the Spirit. Not It's not a hopscotch game of in and out, in and out, in and out. It is enjoying that fellowship with God, which is a uh, uh, something that where the believer participates by his walk, his positive response to God's word and its application. While we are walking by the Spirit, He fills us with His word. That's Ephesians five eighteen. And then we get to the next three, which work together. Our faith rest drill, where we are trusting in God's promises, claiming them, and resting in His provision. Our grace orientation, which starts at the cross, continues through confession, recognizing that God graciously and freely forgives us of our sin because He graciously and freely gave us a Savior, and that His love for us is... uh, is part of his grace, is an expression of his grace. His love is neither deserved nor earned. It is based upon his character. It's based upon his own integrity. It's based upon uh, who God is and not based upon who we are. And that fundamental, you cannot understand biblical love or Christian love if you don't understand grace. Because grace looks at the object and says, you have to do something to earn my love, to stay in my love, for me to continue to love you. It's always placing conditions on the other person. And we all know that the people we live with, the people we grew up with, the people we work with, are not always kind, wonderful people that they have sin natures and they often do things that that irritate us and bother us, upset us, and anger us. And so we have to learn how to deal with that so that we are not placing unrealistic conditions on our love because love that is based on conditions is a love that will easily be lost. So this is the foundation. Then we saw... That in spiritual adolescence, we need to develop an understanding of where we're headed. We need to live today in light of eternity, that God has a plan and purpose for our life, and it involves conforming us to the image of Christ and to building the character of Christ in our lives. And as we walk by the Spirit and the Spirit produces this fruit in our lives, the result is that which is rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. So we begin with the end in mind, knowing that we're going to be evaluated on how we walked by the Spirit. 
and that will yield rewards. But if there's nothing there, you don't lose your salvation. You still go to heaven, but you enter with no rewards. And that's there. So there's two different kinds of believers that come out of the judgment seat of Christ. Those that have rewards, that is privileges and position to rule and reign with Christ in the next stage, which is the messianic kingdom, the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ, or uh, to go on beyond that. So uh, believers are either going to rule and reign with Christ, or they are not going to be participating in the kingdom in that way. So as we get, look at these, the next stage are the mature or spiritual adult skills. We have the personal love for God. We have uh, impersonal love for all mankind, which I am re-terming as Christian love for others. And then our occupation with Christ, these three go together. And the result is uh, we enjoy the happiness of God, which is stability, tranquility, contentment. And it goes beyond even that because we have a stable basis for our joy, and that is the immutability, the unchangeability of God. So we're looking at this skill now of our personal love for God, but it is linked continuously in Scripture with our love for others. And so we're going to need to go back and look at some of those Concepts again in other passages that I didn't get to last time. Our conclusion from last time is that as the believer uh, learns about God and all God has provided for him, appreciation increases along with a desire to obey God and to serve him. We need to learn about God. We are When we are born again, when we trust Christ as Savior and we become a new creature in Christ, we don't know anything about God. We haven't been able to understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man, which is a term in the, in the Greek, sukikos, from the word for soul, meaning a soulish man, is not a believer. And Paul clearly states that the soulish man is unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. So when we become a believer, we have a knowledge base of basically zero other than we understand the gospel. And then we have to start studying the Word. We start to grow. We start to learn what God has provided for us and what God has done for us. And the more we learn of all the wonderful things that God has provided for us, the more we appreciate Him. Some of the things that we learn are the dimensions, the aspects of our salvation. You know, when you're a brand new baby believer, it's just, oh great, I'm, I'm gonna go to heaven when I die. I, I'm, I have assurance of that. That's what the Bible tells me, and we're relieved and happy that we have eternal life. But once we begin to study God's plan of salvation and the work of Christ on the cross, we come to understand that just as sin is multifaceted with uh, a multiple of different consequences, 
So the work of Christ on the cross is multifaceted and described by different words, such as redeemed. That word always emphasizes a payment for something, that something has been purchased. And it was a word that was often used in relation to uh, this purchasing a slave in the slave market so that the image that we have in Scripture is Christ redeemed us at the cross. He paid the penalty and freed us from uh, the slave market of sin so that we could learn to live free of the, the power of our sin nature. The problem is that, as Paul states in Romans 6, we often prefer to go back to the comforts of our sin nature instead of trusting in the Lord. So we are redeemed. Another word is propitiated, not a word that is used in a lot of everyday language today, but it means that God's justice and his righteousness were satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. So we have been redeemed. Uh, God has been uh, propitiated. And the penalty for our sin has been paid for. The idea of, of a substitutionary atonement, that Christ was on the cross in our place. So as we learn those things, our, our, our understanding of what God has given us expands. And we haven't even begun at that point to probe all of the implications of what Paul says in Ephesians 1-3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That never happened before. It didn't happen to Adam. It didn't happen to Abraham. It didn't happen to Moses. It didn't happen to Isaiah. It didn't happen to Daniel. It didn't happen to anybody prior to the beginning of the church. But we, those in the church, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And we should be spending the rest of our lives trying to understand and to utilize those blessings that God has given us. Part of what he gives us is a command to love him, and that this, com this command to love him is measured by obedience. In the Old Testament, we saw that in the Mosaic Law, this God again and again pointed out that we that the Jews, the Israelites, would love him, and it would be evidenced by their obedience. Jesus says the same thing to the church in John 14 and John 15 and John 16, numerous passages where he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that love has an ethical aspect to it, and that relates to obedience uh, obedience to the Lord. It is not measured by emotion. It's not measured by sentimentality. It's not measured by the sort of subjective impressions that most Christians use to um, characterize or to evaluate their worship and their relationship with God. Uh, many Christians think that if they feel like they're worshiping God, they must be, and God must be impressed by that. It's purely subjective. But Scripture says, no, that, that we express our love for him by knowing, by learning his word, knowing his word, and applying his word. So we looked at that last time, as well as the fact that this love for God then motivates us to press on to spiritual maturity. So those are the conclusions we reached last time.
We saw in our study that it goes back to Deuteronomy 6.5, the command in the Old Testament for Israel from the passage that is referred to in uh, Judaism as the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And then it goes on to say in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Again, in Deuteronomy 11, 11, 11.1, rather, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Jesus in John 14.23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, this is for believers. And what this tells us is as believers, we have times when we do not show our love for the Lord, when we do not love him because we are disobedient. And that doesn't mean that we have uh, lost our salvation. And it doesn't mean that we weren't really saved. It just means that we are uh, living like the prodigal son, we're living in rebellion against our father. So we see, as I pointed out last time, this connection uh, between Christian love for others, the personal love for God, and our occupation with Christ. So we ask the question about this soul fortress. The soul fortress, we build this, this is a metaphor for how we build a structure in our soul to strengthen us in our walk with the Lord, to strengthen us and to give us skills so that we can face the problems and challenges of life. And that first one is confession of sin, that's the drawbridge, and the soul takes up residence here, simply by trusting in God. And so we see the faith rest drill, trusting in God, uh, trusting in his promises and claiming his promises, then grace orientation, learning to live in light of God's unmerited favor. We have doctrinal orientation, aligning ourselves to the teaching of Scripture and our personal sense of eternal destiny. So now we are developing the idea of biblical love. So how do we do this? Now, I that should be a one, okay, typo there. This is our first point. And we go to the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is the illustration of love. So what we want to do is turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we will begin with verse 25. And there we read, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, that's the he there in verse 26, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered, that is, this lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, loving your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 28, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. You've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. 
So we need to take a little time to understand what is going on with this question. We looked at Matthew parallel last time and the Mark parallel, and this time we're looking at Luke's Luke's statement. So this lawyer, the lawyer is a Pharisee, but he is a Pharisee who has specialized in a study of the Mosaic law, the Torah, and he would have memorized all of the Torah, and anything that anybody said about it, they would, and they wanted the correct interpretation, they would go to one of these experts on the Mosaic law. And so he's going to stand up and challenge Jesus to see where he stands in relation to the Pharisaic interpretation of the Mosaic law. So he's sort of setting a trap. I always love these traps that the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians set for Jesus and watching his answers because uh, he doesn't rush into giving answers. He often gives questions. Too often when we're talking to somebody, we're in a hurry. We are impatient. We want to get them to the end zone and get saved. Uh, but we need to take a lot of time to ask questions because by asking questions, it gets the person we're talking to to think about what they're saying and the implications and gets them to focus more on on the what is happening in the conversation. So this lawyer asked him this question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this phrase, inherit eternal life, is always in the context of doing something. It relates to living a full life now in light of future rewards. Inheritance has to do with future possession of something. Israel came out of Egypt. Their time of redemption is when they cross the Red Sea. They are redeemed from slavery through the Passover lamb the night before and then crossing the Red Sea. That's the picture of Israel's redemption. And then God is going to promise to take them to the land that he gave or gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is going to be described as their inheritance or their possession. So they're saved, but they're not in that inheritance yet. So there's a distinction between those two ideas. And the lawyer is not asking him, how do I get saved and spend eternity in heaven? He's asking, how do I become a possessor of eternal life, a term that can emphasize life without end, but it can also emphasize the quality of life. And so Jesus asked him uh, the question, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now, remember, the Mosaic law was not given so that they could work their way to heaven. The Mosaic Law was not given with a lot of commands so that by keeping those commands, you could go to heaven. Salvation in this life has never been dependent upon our works. We cannot be as good as God's righteousness. What the Mosaic Law was designed to do was, number one, to provide a stable law code for the nation so that they could experience freedom and life within that nation. A second thing it was designed to do was to show that they could not keep the law. 
that the purpose of the law wasn't to give them a way of eternal life, but it was to show that they could not get there on their own, that their works were inadequate. And so it was to expose sin, not to show them how they could uh, get or earn their own salvation. So when Jesus is asking this question, he understands that the law was given in order to uh, describe and, pro- and protect the life that they would have as God's, as God's people. So it's not, he's not talking about how to get to heaven, how to have, how to be born again or have everlasting life, but the quality of life. And so the law was given to give them a quality of life in the promised land. In verse 27, the lawyer says, quotes, goes back to the Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then the second part, you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the first part, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, summarizes the first five commandments in the Ten Commandments. The command to love your neighbor as yourself is what is found in the second half of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And so he, that's, that's the summary. So he summarized this, and Jesus is going to tell him, you got it right. Because that summarizes in the passages we looked at last time, which is a slightly different situation, same conversation, Jesus summarized it this same way. On the one hand, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and on the other hand, you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we look at that second part, that's a quote from Leviticus 19.18, which we'll come back to in just a minute. So in Mark chapter 12, Jesus answered the scribe who uh, confronted him there, and Jesus said, the first of all the commandments is Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there is no commandment greater greater than these. Now, I want to talk a minute about this second commandment, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Of course, the question he's going to ask is, who's your neighbor? And we'll come to that. But what is the standard here? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What's the standard? The standard is how you have self-love. You love yourself. Everybody loves himself. Now, you've heard modern psychiatrists say, oh, you can't really love yourself until you have a good self-image, and that's garbage. Scripture says everybody loves themselves. That's the essence of sin. You are a self-lover from the moment you take your first breath. We put ourselves first and foremost. We don't have to get a good self-image. We're born with an arrogant, self-absorbed, image that is totally out of whack because of sin. And the law recognizes this. It's saying, love your neighbor like you love yourself. In other words, put other people first instead of yourself first all the time. 
So this commandment comes out of Leviticus 19.18. This is a commandment to Israelites in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law. They don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They are not told to walk by the Spirit. There is not a personal ministry of God the Holy Spirit to believers in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law. So this is something that they can expect to uh, to do to some degree. But they're going to fail because of our own self-centeredness, part our orientation of our sin nature. In Galatians 5.13, the Apostle Paul is going to reference this as he gets to the final section that he's been working toward since Galatians 3.3. 3. The Galatians had a problem with understanding grace, and they got tricked by these Judaizers, Jewish background believers, who believed that you didn't get it all at the cross. You had to add the law to what you got at the cross to be either A, truly saved, or B, to truly grow as a, as a Christian. And so that's why Paul makes this statement that I, that I quoted earlier that we, in Galatians uh, 2.14, that we are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. That's the issue. In the Mosaic Law, there's, uh, or the Judaizers, you had to also not only trust Christ, but you had to uh, apply the Mosaic Law. And then the second part of their error was that they said that in order to grow as a Christian, you had to apply the law. And so at the beginning of Galatians uh, Galatians 3, Paul makes the point that to to the Galatians, did you begin by the Spirit and now you're being completed by works? No, three key words. Flesh, did you begin, uh, spirit first of all, did you begin with the spirit and now you're being completed by the flesh? So you have spirit, completed, which is a Greek word teleo, and flesh. You don't find those three words again till you get to Galatians 5.16, which is the next verse I'm going to put up here. So from Galatians 3.4 to Galatians 5.15, Paul is building up to his answer to the question, the rhetorical question he asked in verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected, completed by the, by the flesh? So he, all of the, everything in between leads to these two statements in 13 and 14. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is a term for the sin nature. But through love, serve one another. So the question would be, how do I do that? And then he explains a little bit. He says, for all the law, that's the Mosaic law, is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Are we doing that? The answer would be no. So then in verse 16, Paul gives the corrective for the church age. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. Now, this is an instrumental case in the Greek. It's walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust 
of the flesh. We've covered this many, many, many times. The shall not is a case in the Greek where you have a double negative plus a subjunctive mood verb, and that was an idiom for saying you it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Something has to happen. Take the illustration of Peter. Peter is on the ship, storms out there, the waves are are uh, rising. He looks out, and Jesus is walking on the water. He wants to walk on the water. So Jesus says, come on. So as long as Peter is looking at Christ, he's walking on the water. Suddenly, he caught movement out of the corner of his eye, and he sees this wave coming, and he turns, takes his eyes off of Jesus. And what happens? The default is he sinks beneath the waves. As long as he was looking at Jesus, he's going to keep walking on the water. As long as we keep conscientiously walking by the Spirit, we're not going to sin. But if we take our eyes off of that for a second, then the default is we go to the sin nature. That's why it says, as long as we're walking by the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But once we stop, we get our eyes off the Spirit, we stop walking in dependence on the Spirit and by the Spirit, then we're going to sink. Now, the point that I'm making here is that walking in the Spirit is then described in contrast with the sin nature in the next couple of verses, 17 to 18. And then 19 to 21 talks about how do you know when you're living according to the sin nature, according to the flesh, and lists all these different sins. Then he shifts back to talk about what's the fruit of the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, the Spirit is going to produce fruit in your life. What's the first word that's used to describe this fruit? It's love. That tells you that love for the Christian life cannot be manufactured on your own. It's manufactured by God the Holy Spirit as a result of our walk by means of the Spirit. It is a supernatural endowment. It is not how we feel about Jesus and all the warm fuzzies you get when you sing the silly little choruses. It has to do with walking by the Spirit and the results of walking by the Spirit. So Paul ratchets this up. He goes he goes back to Leviticus 19.18 which is love your neighbor as yourself. Then he talks about walking by the Spirit. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says that he commands them, love one another as I have loved you. This is how all men will know that you are my disciples. Not, he didn't say, this is how all men will know you're a Christian. He doesn't say, this is how all men will know you're a believer. Because some believers and some Christians haven't decided if they want to be a disciple yet. A disciple is simply a learner, somebody who wants to be a student of Jesus, a student of the Word of God, to learn it and assimilate it. So in John thirteen thirty four and 35, Jesus gives a new pattern. He says, love one another like you love yourself. Is that what he said? No. That's Leviticus 19.18. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Well, wait a minute. That's a much higher standard than what they had in the Old Testament. I'm supposed to love others as you love me? 
That was a perfect love. I can't do that on my own. It can only be manufactured by the Holy Spirit as a result of me walking by the Spirit. So this is the distinctiveness here. You have the Old Testament idea about loving God, and that is still true for today, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart. Most of the time, the word heart refers to the thinking part of the soul. Love, not an emotion, it's thinking, thinking a certain way. With all your soul, every aspect of your soul, with all your mind, you know, it's intellectual, it is thinking, it is thought, it is not emotion, it's not warm fuzzies about Jesus, it is thinking correctly, which means you have to know the Word of God and internalize it in your life before you can even think about loving God. It has to be with all your mind, not part of your mind. A lot of halfwits in Christianity. So we have to use our whole mind, which means we have to be totally engaged mentally with the Scripture. This is the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy six four, four and five. So after he says this to the to the lawyer um, in verse twenty-seven. He is, um, in 1027, the lawyer says, excuse me, the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this comes from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Deuteronomy 19, and excuse me, Leviticus 19, 18. So that tells you that this is, this is grounded in the Mosaic law. At the time that Jesus is talking to the, to the lawyer, they're still in the age of Israel. The cross hasn't happened yet. They're still in the Old Testament dispensation. They're not into the church age yet. So they're talking about Old Testament standards. So Jesus' response is, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Wait a minute. See, if you interpret his inheriting eternal life as getting saved, then you're forced to take verse 28 as Jesus saying, if you obey the law, you'll have eternal life. You'll live. That's, that's not it. We're talking about physical life. In Leviticus 18.4 and 5, the law says, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and ordinances. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself. Keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. Well, that's because there's a death penalty involved if you break a number of the commandments. So if you want to have real life, and that's what's described in the first part of Leviticus 26, if you walk with the Lord, the Lord says, I'm going to bless you in all these different ways. You will have a an abundant life. But if you disobey, then I'm going to bring divine discipline on the nation, and you're going to lose all of these things. But the lawyer then says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Let's define neighbor. So like a good lawyer, he's going to start picking apart the terms to figure out an escape clause. Who is my neighbor? And in this, we're going to see this connection between the personal love for God, Christian love for others, and occupation with Christ. 
And we're going to move, be able to move beyond then just the understanding of biblical love, which is what the conversation is focusing on now. And Christian love goes beyond that. So in Luke 10.30, Jesus tells a story. This is a parable. It's, he's not talking about a specific individual because they aren't named. When they're named, he's talking about specific historical events and individuals. So he says, a certain man, it goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Those of you who have been to Israel know that that is an extremely steep highway. It is 17 miles long and takes about 40 or 45 minutes to drive up. It goes from the, um, from Jerusalem and descends down to the Dead Sea which is a descent from 2,600-foot elevation in Jerusalem to 800 feet below sea level at Jericho, and then which is a 3,400-foot descent. Or if you're going up, up the ascent of Adumim, then you're going to be walking up that steep hill. So Jesus says this guy's taking the easy route now. He's going downhill from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he is ambushed by a gang of thieves. They strip him of his clothing, they wound him, they attack him, they beat him up, they assault him, and they leave him for half dead on the side of the road. Now, there's three different people that are going to come by and take notice of him. The first two are those that... You would that the people would expect uh, would take care of this guy. Now, nobody knows who this is. He doesn't have a name. They're just walking by and seeing this stranger that has just uh, been beaten up and assaulted to within an inch of his life. So the first one to come by is a priest. Now, a priest is a descendant of Levi. He's Levitical, but he is specifically a descendant of Aaron. So he is a priest. The Levite in this, in verse 32 is someone who is not descendant from Aaron, but is a descendant um, of Levi. He's in the tribe of Levi. So a subset of the tribe of Levi are those who are descendants um, from Aaron, and they are priests. So you would expect a priest to do something about this, to help this guy. And he, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I'm going to walk across to the other side of the road and act like I, I haven't even seen him. Just ignore him. Second, you have a Levite. When he arrived at the place, he came and looked, and then he goes to the other side. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I, I'm too busy. I don't have time to get involved. But a certain Samaritan... Now, who was a Samaritan? Most people don't know what a Samaritan was. In, uh, in approximately 930 BC, there was a tax revolt that occurred in Israel. The northern ten tribes revolted against Rehoboam, the king in the south, because of his onerous taxation of them. And so they had a tax revolt. And they put Jeroboam in as their king, who was their leader in the tax revolt. And you now have the nation of Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So everything north of Jerusalem, just about, 
was part of the northern kingdom. Then what happened was the northern kingdom always had evil kings, and as a result of their disobedience to the Mosaic law, God fulfilled what he said he would do in his contract, that if they disobeyed him, he would have them defeated by a foreign power and removed from the land that God promised them. That happened in 722 B.C., So what happened is the Assyrians came in, and their policy was when they conquered an area, they would take the indigenous population and move them to different areas of their empire, and then they would take other other ethnic groups and move them to repopulate the area they had conquered. So the result was you had a number of other peoples and ethnic groups brought to the area of the northern kingdom, and they would intermarry with the Jews that were left. The result was you had a mixed race in the north. And so there was a tremendous uh, racial discrimination by the uh, Jews of the south. In fact, they hated the Samaritans more than any KKK wizard hated blacks back when the KKK was active and powerful. Okay, It was a bitter, terrible prejudice and hatred. And so when Jesus says this Samaritan comes along, he sees this Jew that has been uh, bushwhacked and left on the side of the trail about to die. And it's this Samaritan who knows that he is absolutely, totally hated by this by this Israelite on the side of the trail, he's the one who stops and helps him. So the Levite, who's Jewish, the uh, priest who's Jewish, they ignore this fellow Jew, but it's this Samaritan who is completely hated by the by the victim in the bush that's going to stop and help him. So this Samaritan, as he journeyed, journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him... He had compassion for this victim. So he went to him. What does he do? See, it's not just a this kind of love, because Jesus is illustrating the love for a neighbor, and this Samaritan is the one who is acting as the true neighbor. Uh, Jesus is going to point out here that, that this love for your neighbor isn't just an absence of any kind of mental attitude, sin, of bitterness or anger or hatred or anything like that, but that it is active. It does something. In this case, he bandages his wounds. He puts oil and wine on the wounds. He sets him on his own animal, so the man's donkey must have wandered off, and, he, and so the Samaritan puts him up. On, oh, no, excuse me, I misread that. He puts him on his own animal, the, the Samaritan's animal, and he takes him to an inn. And when he gets to the end, he takes care of him. He asks for a first aid kit, further takes care of him. And on the next day, this Samaritan leaves, and he goes to the innkeeper, pays the innkeeper, and uh, says to him, use this to take care of this this victim, and if it costs more than what I've given you, then when I come back, I'll pay you the rest. I'll take care of it. So he's going uh, uh, beyond expectations in taking care of this of this victim. 
So the illustration here is loving your neighbor is being concerned and exercising care and not just doing the minimum, but doing not only all you can, but maybe even more uh, to help the victim. So Jesus um, asks him at the end of this, who who of these three do you think was the neighbor uh, to the one who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer says, well, the one who showed mercy on him. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is grace in operation. Grace means that the bestowal of undeserved favor on somebody, but mercy is grace in action. So we see the action taking place here uh, when he's taking care of the, uh, of the victim. So what do we learn from this? We learn, first of all, that neither the Samaritan, the priest, or the Levite knew the Jew who had been ambushed. They didn't know him. There wasn't a personal relationship. It wasn't somebody they had uh, any knowledge of at all. And so the application of love extends to someone that is not even known by the one who is showing love. You don't have to know the person. It can be some idiot on the highway who just uh, almost ran you off the road, or it can be somebody who uh, does something in the parking lot at HEB or whatever. You don't know who they are, but we the way we solve the problem, rather than giving in to anger and frustration and whatever else you might do, is to uh, stop something, you know, every now and then, I know you do this, I do this, I wake up and go, well, maybe I need to just pray about this every time. So when I get irritated with some idiot in the parking lot, I immediately say, Lord, I'm just being impatient. I need patience right now. And I started trying to do that and be more, much more patient with the idiots in the parking lot. <laughs> Second, the recipient of the Samaritan's act of love was part of a culture that was totally hostile to the Samaritan. This per- he knows that this person's a Jew and hates his guts and would not return the favor if he had the opportunity. So he's going to do, do what this person doesn't deserve. That's what love does. It doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do this on the condition that you be the kind of person that I should love. You know, a lot of people go into marriage that way. They go into marriage and say, okay, well, when you're doing things the way I like them to be done, then I'm going to love you. But if you don't do things the way I want you to do them, then I'm not going to love you. That's a conditional love, and that marriage won't last because it's not built on something that is eternal. So how do we build it on something eternal? The only thing eternal is God, and he is immutable and perfectly righteous. So we have to love people not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who God is. So forth, this means that the love is not conditioned upon the behavior or the likability or any other positive factor in the one who receives it. When I was a counselor at Camp Penile, one of the things that was often emphasized, and I didn't fully understand it as an 18 or 19-year-old, was that we need to love the unlovable. There are kids that come to camp, and they're not very lovable. And I, I would take that back later when I was in, in um, teaching school, and I would think, I've got a, and I ran an in-school suspension class. 
they weren't lovable, especially the junior high ones. But there was this one guy, I don't remember his last name, but his first name was Bobby, and this guy had a metabolic problem. It's what we finally decided. You could smell him when he came in the door, and it wasn't normal body odor. He was extremely offensive. And as soon as I would got to thinking about him back then, I thought, I'm supposed to love the unlovely. This kid is really unlovable. But that's how we are to God. We're obnoxious to God in our sin. But he loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. Fifth, this love is called impersonal because we don't have to know the person. Impersonal to some people means cold, distant, icy. That's not what it necessarily means. It's the opposite of personal. You come to know somebody, they have wonderful traits, you have a personal love for them because of their attractiveness. But an impersonal love means you don't know the guy. Like Like the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan, they had no knowledge of who that mugged Jew was on the side of the road. But the Samaritan didn't have to know him to treat him on the basis of what was right. And that's what impersonal love is. And it's a demonstration of grace. So what we've seen today is an understanding of biblical love. Next time we're going to come back and look at what happens after John 13, 34, and 35 when we have the standard ratcheted up to Christian love, which is modeled on Christ and produced by the Holy Spirit, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning. None of us gets away scot-free on a message and study like this. We all fall short because of our sin nature, yielding to our sin nature, not walking according to the Holy Spirit, trying to struggle and learn to walk by the Holy Spirit. But we'll always struggle with that as we grow and as we advance in our spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we do so, that we will be more conscientious about our walk by the Spirit and the fact that we are to love others as Christ has loved us, that that's the standard. But, Father, there may be those who are here who've never trusted in Christ as Savior or don't have eternal life, and they may think, well, I'll never do that. Well, you're right, you never will. But the starting point is not trying to pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps, but recognize that Christ has already done everything for you. He paid the penalty on the cross. He died for your sins. He had you in mind as he hung there between heaven and earth so that by simply trusting in him and his substitutionary death for you that you could freely have eternal life by simply trusting in him, believing that he died for your sins. Then once you do that, you have everlasting life. You're born again. You're a new creature in Christ. And then the challenge of walking with the Holy Spirit begins. So, Father, we pray that you would make the gospel clear to those who need to hear it and that you would make clear your mandates for the church age to us who need to walk more closely by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.